Let's talk about Jesus and Herod, a contrast of two kingdoms, kind of a, kind of a Christmas, kind of the dark side of Christmas here on, on, on one sense of the word. Uh, Jesus and Herod. Jesus was born at the right time in human history. Uh, scripture says that at, when the fullness of time had come. It's like in God's mind, there was this timetable he had set, and when everything got full and just right, it says that he sent Jesus born of a woman, is what it says in Galatians 4.4. 4. So in the fullness of time, Jesus was born during the time of, of a guy named King Herod, and also during the time of the Roman Empire. We're going to do a little bit of history, pulling all that together, and I hope we can get some insights from it. The Jewish people are under the rule of Rome, and their appointed king was Herod the Great. You've probably heard of him. Herod the Great. It, it says this in Luke 1.5. You can see it on the screen there. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I really, not to take all the content away, all that's really important, that's John the Baptist's uh, mom and dad. Uh, I want you to see in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Okay, this is the setting of the Christmas story. All right, now go to Matthew chapter 2. You're going to see this again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the wise men. We're not sure who they are. There's a lot of speculation over them. Um, more likely, historians are teaching us that it, they're probably like kingmakers from the east who studied the heavens and the stars and all that kind of thing. And they came over to see, they, they, in fact, they say this in just a minute. They say, we saw his star in the east. So these were people who were uh, astute in religion. They were astute in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures as well. Uh, and they saw something in the heavens that was not normal. It was not common. And in fact, this star that sits in the east, it very likely uh, sits there for a very long time. That's probably one of the anomalies that made them say, hey, that's something very unique and divine about that, that deal that's going on. So uh, these are the wise men. And how many wise men were there? We don't know. That's right. We don't know. Well, that's right. We, that's exactly right. Not trying to be coy or anything, but... We say three, and there's usually three in all of our plays and all that kind of stuff, but it's because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There were three gifts. So we know there were at least more than one because wise men, you get that. You know, I went to public school, but I, get, I do get that much. In what? In the movie. Yeah, in the movie. Well, that's a good source right there, right? <laughs> and Charlton Heston's Moses too, by the way. <laughs> all right. So the wise men come from the east, and they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is born to be born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We're going to talk about why he was troubled in a minute. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he went to his Bible scholars and said, Where is this supposed to happen? Okay. So they said to him, the Bible scholars said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them 
Notice they didn't see the star when they got in Herod's presence. It was when they left his presence that they found the star again because you got to be careful who you hang out with. You lose your way. <laughs> They'd seen the star in the east and went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They lost it and they picked it back up again. And when they had come into the house, okay, now that, not to mess up everybody's Christmas decorations, but they came into the house. So this is after the birth, right? The wise men more than likely were not at the manger scene that we call the stable and all that kind of thing. This is, this is possibly upwards, some, it could be weeks, it could be up to two years from the time of the birth of Jesus. Okay, so this is an ongoing story, still, still part of the birth narrative because it's still Jesus is a young child. All right, you got that? Everybody okay? You can keep your manger scene the way you want it. That's the way they make them. <laughs> Shepherds were there. Shepherds were there, all right? Mary and Joseph were there. Other than that, I don't know if Uncle Joe made it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, put the wise men over in the dining room and lay the manger in the living room, and that'll keep the story intact, and they're coming. They're on their way, right? Point them that way. <laughs> right, never mind. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. It's always the way we should respond to Jesus. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their, for their own country another way. Verse number 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And here's where it gets real dark. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death, this is really, really nasty here, he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under. That's, that two, that's where we get the idea of Jesus may have been upwards of two years old right here. Huh. According to the time from which he had determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. Horrible. Just horrendous. Just a genocide type deal. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was the son of Herod, okay, and in, in the book of Acts, he'll be called Herod Archelaus, okay, which makes it a little confusing. But he, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right, that's what it kind of highlight the idea of Herod in this part of the story in Matthew chapter 2. Why did Herod want to kill Jesus? Okay, 
Why did Herod want to kill Jesus? He's a threat to the kingdom, but why? Why? And it's in the text. You know, you can always trace these answers back to the text. Uh, usually one of the prophets speaks about it or one of the stories speaks about it. Remember the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. And, and Rebekah has twin boys. Remember the twin boys? What were their names? Remember? Jacob and Esau, right? There was a prophecy spoken over these twin boys as they wrestled in the womb. Remember that? It said, the Lord came to her and said, you have two nations in your womb. Two peoples are in your womb, okay? And one we know is Israel, which was Jacob. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis 32, and God changed his name to Israel, which literally means one who wrestles with God. He grapples with God, okay? Israel and Esau became a, a nation too, a nation of people uh, called the Edomites, okay? They lived down in a land called Moab in that kind of region, in the Edomites, okay? And it's also called Edom in the scriptures as well. All right, now, the scripture says, the prophecy says over these boys that the older will serve the younger. Remember that? So if we were talking about those two nations, he would say that the Edomites will serve the Israelites. That's what the prophecy basically says if you look at it through the lens of history and of the nations, Okay. Now, Numbers 24, 17 through 18 says this. This is why Herod really wanted to kill Jesus. He was threatened by him because Herod may have believed the scriptures more than you think he did, okay? Although he was a very vile, evil, wicked man. Numbers 24, 17 through the first part of 18 says this. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. What's, what's, that? what's the picture of a scepter? What does that mean? A scepter. A king. Kings have scepters, right? So a king, a scepter, shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult, and Edom shall be a possession or slave of Israel. Okay? Now here's the tricky part. Herod was an Edomite. <laughs> he was from Idumea, down south there. He was an Edomite. So when the word comes that there is this possible king that is born in Bethlehem, Herod has been told about this. He knows about this. Because he's politically savvy enough to where he would have studied all sides. He knew all the Roman stuff, but he also knew all the Jewish stuff. And he, he's kind of a, he's, you know, not to be crude or anything, but he's kind of a half-breed anyway. He's not really Jewish. He's not really Roman. He's kind of caught in between there. Uh, but he did marry into the Jewish family, and now he's, he's, he's part of that dynasty, and, and the Romans own that little uh, uh, what hanging chad, on that little thread of information. They appointed him king over the Jewish people because they thought the Jews would receive him because he's like married into the family. Well, little did they know, they, no, it didn't work. Okay. Now, Jesus is a threat to Herod because of this word here. Because of this prophecy. And Herod knows it. So what does he do? What do most tyrannical kings do of the ancient world? What do they most of them do when they have a threat? They face it, go to war, take it out. Okay, that's what Herod attempts to do there in Bethlehem where you saw Rachel weeping, which Rachel would be the feminine side of Israel. Rachel weeping for her children. Literally, I mean, you can't even imagine. You know, you can't even imagine the horror 
of what's going on there, riding through the streets. And I know some movies have tried to capture some of that, but nobody can really capture the horror in that small village. I mean, it would be, not, not to press it too far, but it would be like the army coming right here in Gilbert Town, showing up and doing its thing in a small town like this, and what are you going to do? What could you do? You might try to defend a little bit, but is it going to last? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? You would Yeah. By the time it all happens, it's it's over with. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just another sign of the oppressor oppressor that's there over God's people as well. So Herod wanted to kill Jesus for other reasons as well. He just he's just threatened by it. he's just threatened by Jesus. Um, but he could have wanted to kill Jesus simply because he, he, may have, he may have been more of a man of faith than what we know as far as understanding and believing the scriptures. All right, so now two, they had two things in common, Jesus and Herod, two things in common. They're both called the king of the Jews. Hmm. Remember Jesus was called that? It was put on the cross, the king of the Jews. They're both called the king of the Jews. And they both were building a kingdom. Okay, One's temporal and is now in ruins. And in fact, if you go over to Israel, basically what you're visiting a lot of are the ruins of the buildings of Herod the Great. That's mostly what you're visiting. That's mostly where all the tourist stops are because it's still very impressive even in its ruined state. Both were building a kingdom. One is temporal and one is eternal and ever-expanding. Herod was very ambitious. He's one of the more ambitious men of, of all of history, really. Okay? But I want to I submit this to you. Jesus is more ambitious than Herod. <laughs> Jesus says this, he says that of his kingdom there will be no end. And that his kingdom is going to take over the whole world. That's what Jesus says. So they're both building kingdoms. So who is this Herod the Great? Uh, the time of history, you, you may know this from some of your historical studies. Mark Anthony, remember that guy? And Cleopatra, remember her? The one who killed herself with the cobra bite and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the love deal that was going on between them and Caesar and all that kind of stuff. Remember that stuff? That was in, in some of the movies you were talking about. <laughs> that, this is the time of history we're talking about here. Okay, Caesar Augustus is in Rome. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Caesar Augustus is actually coming to power. All right. Uh, Herod comes to power in Judea in 37 B.C., around that time. And he rules till about somewhere around 4 to 6 A.D. is what they say. Uh, he's known as Herod the Great simply because of his wealth and architectural achievements. We're going to look at some pictures in just a moment. Uh, he was a very, very, very extremely wealthy man. Possibly the most wealthy man of all of human history. Uh, it's said that he employed an estimated 85% of the territory that he ruled over. Imagine that. I mean, that is, I mean that's worse than Walmart, ain't it? I mean, that's, I mean, that's everybody working for this guy. And so in some, some shape, directly or indirectly, working for him somehow, some shape, form, or fashion. So we've got... I mean, he, he's got that deep of pockets where he can have the entire region on payroll. He made his money on, in the spice trade and some of the uh, other medicinal stuff that they had in circulation during that time. He made his money right there. And in that land that he was from was some of the major crossroads, and they controlled those territories. And he, he benefited off of the wealth of those crossroads that he and his family owned. Uh, extremely, extremely wealthy man. He was strong, athletic, intelligent from what historians say. He was politically savvy, extremely eccentric, uh, domineering, shrewd businessman, uh, ruthless, and extremely, extremely cruel. Okay? You wouldn't want to have been married to the guy. He killed two of his wives, by the way. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's crazy, isn't it? 
Ah. Here, here's the picture of his kingdom. That, that's a, basically a picture of Israel right there. You see it, it comes all the way from Phoenicia, the north, and Idumea, that's where he would be from. Okay, that's down in here, this is Judea. Down here is the kingdom of Moab and Idumea, right in here. All right. After his death, his wealth and kingdom are divided among his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Uh, you see those names in the book of Acts, if you study it. And also his grandson was King Agrippa I. He's in the book of Acts. Remember, King Agrippa has a conversation with the Apostle Paul, and we get the phrase, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Remember that? So King Agrippa is his grandson. So, I mean, the dynasty continues throughout the biblical story, all the way through the book of Acts. Now, here's some of his building projects. Just kind of gives you a picture of the kind of kingdom this guy's building, the kind of wealth he has. Now, this is Masada. Anybody heard of Masada? They had some movies made about it and things like that. It was one of the last fortresses around the 70 A.D. fall of everything. Is one of the last fortresses that the Jews had. They built this, this ramp right here going up. Um, this, is, this was a palace. I can't even describe to you. I've hiked all in this desert and all in this mountain, and uh, that's quite a climb because they wouldn't let us take the pathways. Uh, we, we climbed this mountain to get to this fortress right here, and we found out there's a tram on the backside, and we asked our guide, how come... We didn't get to take the tram. Why did we have to climb this, this joker? It was 124 degrees, and I'm not kidding about that. Uh, he said, we didn't want to take the tram. He said, the man made the tram. God made the mountain. We're climbing the mountain. Oh. I was like, oh, okay. What are you? Now you put it like that. You made it all spiritual. <laughs> Masada, this is a, a desert re region here in Judea. That, this is one of his palaces. He had many, many palaces. This is one of his fortress palaces. Uh, where he would have soldiers garrisoned all around right in here. Um, this is a palace. I mean, I can't even describe it to you. It's amazing. There's a huge swimming pool up on this mountainside. I'm talking about there's not a drop of water within 30 miles of this place. This man was wealthy enough, enough to get it there and build all this. This is tiered down right here. Uh, there's there's uh, some sort of a temple here. He built this, this little tier section right here. Right here is a mausoleum for his second wife that he killed. And he buried her right there. And it's, history tells us that he visited her almost every day. He was on this fortress, uh, grieved her death. Uh, just a crazy guy. Um, he built this Caesarea Maritime. Uh, this is just a port city. He dedicated this to Caesar. You see the Temple of Augustus he built for Caesar there. Uh, built this, this uh, hippodrome, which is basically a, a horse track, a racetrack. Uh, the Roman amphitheater. He built all of this whole city deal and dedicated it. He built this marina. He was a very extremely intelligent man. Uh, historians tell us that he did a lot of the architectural drawings himself, uh, basically city planning type stuff. Okay, so this kingdom is is a powerful kingdom. That's the picture I'm trying to get you to, to see. He, it was a very very influential, very very wealthy kingdom. This is one of the theaters. They re redid some of it, uh, but this is that picture of that that harbor right there. That's it, kind of in its ruined state right here. See what I'm talking about? Very impressive if you ever get to go. Has anybody ever been to, to Israel at all? Anybody? Yeah. We'll have to get a trip to go sometime. He also renovated the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay, Trying to get on the good side of the Jewish people, he basically goes in and renovates the Temple Mount. He took it from somewhere around a 10 to 15 acre structure and he expanded it to about a 40 acre structure. I'll, I'm, when I say 40 acres, I'm talking about this development here is 40 acres, this this. This pad right here. It'd be like a shopping mall, basically. But he, he renovated the temple. 
uh, just to get in good with the Jews. Funded himself. Okay. Now think about this. I, I mean, they didn't trust him. The Jews didn't really like him doing it, but they took it because they, what were they going to do really? When he, he rebuilt the temple, this, this is the, the Holy of Holies right here. He rebuilt the temple part, but the Jews didn't trust him because he wanted to tear down the temple and rebuild it. And they said, no, 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 you're not tearing down the temple. So he made a deal with them and he built the structure around the old structure. And then they dismantled the old after he got the new built because they didn't trust him. Some of the foundation stones, just to talk about some of his engineering prowess. The found, some of the foundation stones down in here, you can still go and see it. Uh, this is all a graveyard today, a modern day graveyard. It's, it's actually an Islamic graveyard. Uh, this is the eastern gate right here, okay? This is, this is when it says Jesus is going to come to, through the eastern gate. That's, that's what it's speaking of right there, okay? Um, some of these foundation stones right here, you get down in, in the footings of it all, are, are like 40 foot long. I mean, that's longer than this room. 600 tons. How heavy is that, Paul? 600 tons. I mean, we, we don't hardly have equipment today that can move some of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's crazy stuff. But, but the guy, he was serious about building his kingdom is what I want you to see. And he's not going to have a baby born in Bethlehem to mess it up. You understand? You understand what I'm talking about? He also built this. This is another one of his palaces. It's called the Herodian. Okay? Basically what he did, this used to be two mountains right here. He took the top of this mountain off, put it on top of that one to double stack it. So when Jesus tells the disciples, says, if you say to this mountain, be removed, they've got a context for that, that a man actually has done that, and everybody knows where that place is in Jesus' day. Okay? That's the Herodian. Uh, it can be seen from Bethlehem. That's an interesting thing. It can be seen from Bethlehem, just a little hamlet of a town, but they can see this in eyeshot right here in this valley. Okay? Uh, it can be seen from Jerusalem. All right? Now, here's just a kind of an aerial view of that Herodium, if we're looking down on it. It's, um, the data I got on it was about, it's about 20 acres in, in circumference right there. About, that's a pretty big place. Okay. Uh, it had four towers. It basically becomes Herod's burial site as well, is what Josephus tells us. Okay. There, there was a watchtower right here. Okay. And it, was, it was a fortress. Everything kings do, they do for fortress protection type stuff because... Uh, very few people like them, you know what I'm saying? So they kind of do that. Terry did the same thing. Here's kind of an artist's rendering of, of what it possibly looked like on top of that mountainside, okay? Uh, that wall's, just kind of give you a perspective, that wall's about uh, 15 to 20 foot thick, okay, around there. Uh, this is where it's speculated that he and his family lived here. There's a burial chamber they found down there. They didn't find his body, but they, historians tell us that he was buried at this particular place. Okay, just kind of getting the picture, just a feel of what this guy was all about. Okay, the Herodian overshadowed Bethlehem. That's a, that's kind of a bad picture, pixelated a little bit. But this would be the small village of Bethlehem. There's the Herodian. Now, what happened in Bethlehem? Just so we're clear, what happened to Bethlehem? Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is also the city of David, right? And Bethlehem, Bethlehem. It, house of bread that's what it literally means so the bread of life was born in the house of bread think about that the bread of life was born in the bakery how about that <laughs> I mean seriously I mean that's, that's the picture God painted for us 
And he put him in a manger, which is a feeding trough. He put the bread of life in the manger and said, see what I'm talking about? God knows what he's doing. All right. Now let's make the connection with Jesus in Bethlehem. Okay. Jesus, on the other hand, Herod's got all this massive wealth, all this crazy wealth. I mean, it's just stupid wealth, really. Jesus is born in a cave or a stable in Bethlehem. Very likely with something that looked just like this. Just a shepherd cave. It's the inside of a shepherd cave. It's taken with my camera there. Um, probably if it was cleaned out and active, it wouldn't have all those rocks there. It would just be an open cave, a little place for a fire. That's just kind of come down through the Europeans. But here, here's what probably, it, it, from a historical standpoint, this is probably what it was, okay? It would be a stable, okay? That little knoll that we just saw right there. I'm not saying that cave I just saw was the one Jesus was born in. It's just like it, okay? There's a lot of those in that region, okay? We don't know where it was, to be honest with you. If you see this, the picture's a little rough, okay? That's the hillside. That's the mountainside. There's the house structure. That's when they said we don't have any room up here. Why do they not have any room? I know we give the innkeeper a hard time, but why do they not have any room? All the cousins and in-laws and uncles and aunts were there, wasn't it? And they got there late to... <laughs> so Mary and Joseph got there late to the party, basically. And why did they get there so late? Well, she was pregnant. It just got... got, got yeah. She was pregnant riding... Uh, uh, a donkey, you know, so to speak. Or they, they walked, maybe even worse. That's a pretty good walk. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Spoken from a man who's got three kids, right? <laughs> and here, here's the place where there would have been a stable, something like that, a stable. Uh, and the reason it probably wasn't similar to what we think of as a stable in a manger is that there weren't that many wood structures back then. Okay, there simply there's not that many trees, you know, in, in a desert. Exactly. We have, we got to do the three wise men next month. <laughs> exactly. And don't. <laughs> yeah, put them in the tram. And you know, I, I'm not trying to be in conflict with those ideas. Those are ideas that help paint our picture of, of things. Um, so don't don't just get so crazy about it and all that kind of thing. But but historically, this is kind of more likely the way it was. Okay. So many years, people thought the wise men saw a baby. They were there when the baby Lot was born. And the word for child is different than the word for baby right there, as well. So now, just compare. In your mind, what we showed about the palaces and all the, the, the crazy wealth. And now this king is born here in this unclean, dirty place. With animals. Yeah, with animals. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure the animals were there. Okay. So you, you got that. I'm just cross Jesus and Herod in the story. And, and now when, when the Bible puts people together like that, Take a step back and think about it because it's, it's doing it. The Bible uses a great economy of words to tell a huge story in just a few words, really. The Bible's a big book, but it's not really a big book when you think about all the history that it covers. Okay, 
So it uses all these words. It says, now in the days of Herod, Jesus was born. Okay? It's comparing two kingdoms. It's comparing two mindsets. It's comparing two ways of life. Okay? And what you and I are asked to believe. Okay, this is a big one. We're asked to sit there and look at the wealth and opulence of somebody like that and then look over here in Bethlehem and say, this is your king. Now, I, I want you to feel the tension for the Jewish, Jewish people. That would have been a lot to swallow for them. You know what I'm talking about? In fact, when he comes out of Nazareth, they say that about Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? You know, what good, you know? All right, you get the point. Here's a picture of a manger carved out of a rock. It's, it's broken off at the end right there. But basically, a feed, feeding trough. You see these all over the, the region there in the shepherd territory. Um, and Jesus was laid in a manger. No throne. No silk robes. All right? What's that? Yeah, basically, basically. So Jesus was raised in Nazareth, never owned a house or land. Anybody know why he never owned anything? It's in the text again. It's in the Bible. Okay, priests could not own anything. They weren't allowed to own anything. Why? Was it God trying to keep them poor and impoverished? No, absolutely not. They got to deal with some of the most wealthy things in all of Israel. God didn't want them encumbered with all of the dealings and all the things that were taking place. So Jesus, by not owning anything, when he says to the disciples, do you want to hang with me? Because he said, I don't have a place to lay my head. He wasn't saying, I can't find a place to sleep at night. He said, I don't, I don't own anything. I can't really offer you what you really want. Um, you know, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I, I don't own anything. And it's really a fulfillment of prophecy. He's basically telling them in, in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, uh, I, I'm, I'm part of the priesthood. You know, little did they know that he was a high priest. He never owned house or land. He lived with family and friends. It's very likely that he moved to Capernaum and lived with Peter there in his house. Um, he never sought to build his own reputation. No monuments, no memoirs. As far as we know, he never wrote anything down. None of his teachings. And yet, he is the most influential man of all of human history. <laughs> Why? He kept company with fishermen, sinners, and just common folks. You think Harry's going to hang out with any of them guys? Mm -mm. he resisted power didn't he Jesus actually resisted power as far as what we know as power in an earthly sense made himself of no reputation humbled himself became obedient even unto death All right. let's just compare a couple ideas and we'll go the measure of success let me ask you a question how did Herod measure success wealth Power, stuff, buildings. Herod's going to the grave and saying, nobody's ever going to forget me. I'm going to put my name everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. And yet his kingdom is in ruins, really. Now, still impressive in his ruined state, but it's gone. It's, he's over. And Jesus has increased. You know, he's still increasing his kingdom today. All right? 
He measures it with wealth, power, success. Uh, I want to tell you, that's the gospel the world sells us. The world's got a gospel it's preaching too, you know that? It's preaching it to our kids, it's preaching it to us every day, it preaches it through the TV, through all the sitcoms, and through the books and things we take in. It's preaching a gospel, and it is the gospel of Herod. I can guarantee you that. The more stuff you got, the happier you are. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Make a name for yourself, okay? Herod measures success, money, power, achievements, monuments, all that. How does Jesus measure success? It's way different, isn't it? How does Jesus measure success? He, he does have a measuring stick. He talks a little bit about it. Hmm. People. How would Jesus measure success? He's, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to many folks. What does well done mean to him? It's different than Herod's definition of well done. Herod would put the final brick on the Herodium and said, well done. <laughs> to all his servants. What would Jesus say well done to? What would he say? Faithfulness, obedience. Kindness, taking care of the poor, feeding the hungry, things, things like that, submitting to God and doing God's will. That's really the measuring stick for Jesus. Did you do God's will or not? Not just overall in the scope of the globe, but in your life. Did you... Did you do it? He would measure by how much did you really love God? How much did you really love your neighbor? Jesus would measure it like that, wouldn't he? He'd measure success, success like that, right? It's measured in character, love, and service, and faith. What about their view of politics? Well, Herod used politics. He was a master politician. He would have been on Fox, CNN, MSNBC. He'd have been on all them channels. He was a master. He, could, he had a silver tongue. He could talk anybody into anything, and if you didn't like it, he'd buy you off. That's just way, and that's kind of, does that sound like any place that we know in our country today? Nah, that's, that's kind of how the world works, isn't it? He used politics, the kingdoms of this world, to maintain his peace and gain power. Uh, he was a political mastermind. Jesus goes about building the kingdom of God, and he says this to the most powerful man that comes after Herod, Pontius Pilate, in Judea. He looks at him and says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not like anything you've seen. My battery is running low. All right. Did that pop up there too? Okay. Jesus says to honor the other kingdoms, but he says, don't look to them for your peace and prosperity. Look to the Father's kingdom, the kingdom of God. In the view of people, Herod, he viewed people as, as means to an end, didn't he? They were there to help him accomplish his goal. And if you get in Herod's way, what does he do? He gets rid of you. I mean, seriously. I mean, Herod killed his favorite wife and three of his sons. You know? What's that? Yeah, uh, one king said this of Herod. He said, I would rather be a pig than one of his sons. <laughs> you know? I mean, this man was nuts. I mean, if you got in his way or disagreed with him, he would just power trip you and get you out of the way, take you out. And that's why the babies are killed in Bethlehem. They're seen as a threat because of that prophecy. Jesus views people this. They're not, they're not to be used to accomplish your goals. People are, are made in the image and likeness of God. And you're to love people as you'd want to be loved. 
That's what Jesus would say. And you're to serve people. That's what we're here for. We're to serve one another. And we are literally, no greater love has this than any man than he laid down his life for his friend. And Jesus, Jesus died and lived that way, not to do it for us, but to show us how to do it. Amen. All right. They're placed side by side in the story. Two contrasting kingdoms. Which one are you in? Which one are you supporting? Because I know a lot of folks that go to church, but they live the way of Herod. You know what I'm talking about? It, it, it can suck us all up. I mean, that world's got a vortex, and it's, it's on. And it is drawing us in to the money, power, and wealth. It's drawing us all in to the power tripping, to manipulating people for our own purposes. Which one are you in? Jesus says this in Mark 8, 15. We'll close with this. Jesus charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We talked about that a little bit. It's hypocrisy, really. And he says, Beware and take heed of the leaven of Herod. Remember what, you know what leaven is? It's like yeast, right? You take a little bit of leaven and you sprinkle it in the dough. Now, you got a whole big wad of dough here to make bread for the family dinner, right? How much, how much leaven do you put in? You just put a little pinch of it, don't you? Just a tiny little bit, it's just a little pinch. And that little pinch of leaven does what? It goes through that whole loaf, and it leavens the entire loaf. Jesus is using this idea of Herod and the way he lived his life. Be careful, because if that pinch gets in your yeast or your dough, it's going to mess you up. That's what it says. Amen. Now, how do we keep from being a part? I mean, we've got to work. We've got to have money. We want to use our influence for the kingdom of God. But how can we keep from becoming like Herod? How can we do that? Now, it's time to quit. That's what that means, right? <laughs> how, how, can we, how can we keep? Okay, let's say God has, well, everybody in this room has got to measure wealth. Smaller, great. How do you keep that wealth from controlling you? You've got to have a balance. Moderation of things, okay. What else? That's good. That's a good point. Use what you have, large or small, to build his kingdom. In fact, he's not so much interested in quantity as he is in proportion and quality. Because this lady, Jesus is standing right there by the offering plate when these people putting stuff in and she drops in what we call the widow's mite. Remember that? And Jesus said she dropped in more than all the wealthy people combined because she gave out of her need and they, they just give out, you know, they tip God kind of thing. Hmm. So it's not about how much you give. Hmm. Really is a hard issue. Let me suggest this to you. All those are great comments, and they all, they all certainly apply. 
being generous with what you have is the way to keep wealth from getting in your heart and controlling your life. Being generous. Simply being generous. And I know we probably played this in our mind that when we win the publisher's clearinghouse or we win the lottery, I'll do this for the church or I'll do this for God, I'll do this for the kingdom. But let me tell you something. If you're not giving him a portion of the 20000 you make, you're not going to give him a portion of the 100000 you make or the $1 million you make. But we've all played that what if game. I wish I had this. But, but you know what? The truth is, if you're not generous with what you have, you will not gen- be generous with what you get later. Because it's not about what you have. It's about what's in you right here. It's about what's in your heart, right? So being generous. So here, here's, here's some suggestions about how to be generous. Just, just be generous. Everywhere you go, tip a little extra. Well, the service wasn't that good. Well, I don't know where you can find good service nowadays. But the generosity is about your heart, not about their service. You know what I'm talking about. Be generous to forgive people. Be generous to move on. Don't hold grudges. I mean, that's all part of generosity as well. But be generous, okay? So now if God's given you influence and power, maybe you've got a company, maybe you've got employees, maybe you've got people that work with you as a staff or whatnot, be careful how you use them. In fact, don't, don't use that terminology at all. Be careful. How, how, how you treat them. Uh, probably everybody in here has worked for somebody that really, I mean, you'd like to take them out back <laughs> on, on another day. We've all worked for people who treated us unjustly, probably. Okay? We can go the way of Herod and just use people to get our promotion to get where we want, or we can see people that really are, they are the image and likeness of God everywhere we go. So be careful how you treat them. That's, the, that's part of the leaven of Herod. Okay, all right, just some thoughts, Jesus and Herod.